This morning, we're working through the book of Acts, which is the story of the early church, and we're in chapter 18 this morning. If you wouldn't mind turning your Bibles uh, to that, that would be fantastic. It's a lot easier to teach it if we're all looking at it together. You can find one in the chair in front of you or on our church app as well. Well, as you're turning there, I wanted to read a story to you. It says this, a traveler was driving through a rural area one day and had an accident. He drove his car into a ditch. A local farmer came by to help with his horse named Buddy. Well, the farmer hitched Buddy up to the car and yelled, pull, Nellie, pull. But Buddy didn't move. Once more, the farmer hollered, pull, Nellie, pull. Buddy again didn't respond. The farmer repeated this action again a third time with the same result. Then the farmer nonchalantly said, pull, Buddy, pull. And the horse finally dragged the car out of the ditch. The motorist was really appreciative, but he was also curious. He said to the farmer, I really appreciate what you did for me, but why did you call your horse by the wrong name? The farmer said, oh, because Buddy is blind. And if he thought he was the only one pulling, he wouldn't even try. (laughs) The idea for those of us that are buddies in this world, we don't like the idea of having to carry the weight all on our own. The idea is this, and it's presented in our title, is that teamwork makes the dream work. We said that so often this week during camp when everybody's kind of running on empty, you start to realize, thank goodness it doesn't just depend on one person doing all of the work, all the heavy lifting, and it's a community effort. And that's really from day one, God's design for the church. His intent was that every single one of us bring to the table our unique abilities, our unique talents, our unique efforts for the cause of expanding the church. And for the very first time in the book of Acts of what we've seen, we're going to see a slight twist, a slight turn in how things work. So far in the book of Acts, Paul and Peter have been carrying really much the entire load themselves. You see them go from city to city. They get beat up. They get uh, brought down and they persevere through it. Finally today, we're going to see a turn on the corner where finally this church starts taking root. It starts to sink down a little bit. There's, there's more than just one person pushing and we start to see, man, that's how God operates. That's how God works when he uses the entire body of Christ to expand his kingdom, just like the Cleveland Cavaliers needed more than LeBron James. The church needs everyone as part of the team. Let me pray as we dive in. God, I thank you for this opportunity to study your word and how practical and applicable it is to our lives And even our church, as we saw evident this week, we're grateful for the way that you move in people and use different people's uh, unique gifts and talents, God, for your glory and your honor, God. And it's all about you. It's all about putting the spotlight on you. We ask now that you teach us from this text that this wouldn't be something where we uh, tune out, that we would choose to engage. We'd put the busyness of our week on the shelf and really ask you to speak to us specifically. We invite that now through the power of your Holy Spirit moving in this room. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. All right, so chapter 18, we're in verse 18, and we're starting uh, here with kind of a look at that Paul is done with ministry in this area, but the ministry carries on. Verse 18, after this, Paul stayed many days longer 
and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centria he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail for, from Ephesus. Okay, let's stop there. A little bit of an explanation. The first thing that you'll see is it says, after this. And what is it after this? It's after uh, at least 18 months in Corinth. He's in this uh, city that's known for its just hostile environment, very, being very opposed to really anything spiritual. But he's put down roots there and seen God build his church. Most specifically, when it says after this, it was after the Jews in the city were trying to oppose Paul. And they tried to oppose him. And they come before a ruler that actually uh, stands up, a guy by the name of Gallio that stands up for Paul. The charges are dropped. Ministry continues. So Paul spends 18 months building into this church and sees lots of fruit. Then he senses God's call to move on, to head back to Antioch, which is literally the home base that he started the second missionary journey with. So you're tracking with me? Heads back. And I find it interesting that he has a stop. Uh, it's about a thousand mile trip back to Antioch. So he has this stop in Centria. And in Centria, it tells us that something happened there. What happened there? Something very important. Doesn't seem that important. He got a haircut, right? Do you, do you see it there in the text? It says that he had his haircut. He stopped at Fantastic Sam's or Great Clips, one of those, gets his haircut. And the reason it points to that is it was part of what was called a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow, you can read about it. It's very exciting in the book of Numbers, chapter 6. Uh, you can read about it. It was kind of the idea of an oath that you were making before you went on a task for God with hopes of his backing. So here as he's leaving Corinth, he's kind of symbolizing the conclusion of his time there and literally moving back to home base. So it's a picture. Once the hair is cut, they'd go back to Jerusalem and offer it as a burnt offering of praise to God for his faithfulness during that time. So he's getting his haircut, heading back. On his way back, though, even though he's done with his mission, I love this, he stops there for a little pause in Ephesus, and he can't help himself. He does the same old routine. He goes right back into the synagogue where all the Jews are, are gathered and starts proclaiming or debating with them that Jesus is the Messiah. So even when his ministry is quote-unquote done, he's still on task proclaiming the word of God to those folks. But here's what you'll find interesting in that little section is it says in that synagogue, what is, how does it say that they respond? They ask him to stay. Now let's think where we've been in the book of Acts so far. In other synagogues, how was their response? <laughs> Not so good. It's more like chasing them out with stones and bricks and, and all this. Instead, they're asking him to stay, but he does a peculiar thing now. He says, you know, I feel like I need to head out. I need, to, I need to head home. I need to follow God's plan for me. I need to leave. But here is the subtle little difference from the entire book of Acts till now is now he's leaving. But when he leaves, he leaves what? Two people behind him, Aquila and Priscilla. He's realizing that teamwork makes the 
dream work. There you go. Thank you so much. So here's the the idea. He's realizing it's not just about him. He's leaving behind a a team that can continue on the ministry. And so he's just following God's will for his life. And he tells him, he's like, I want to come back. And I love how he ends his statement, if God wills it. My mom, when I was growing up, went on this kick it's really based in scripture of making sure that you give God credit for it being his will before you move on to anything. It's based out of James 4. It says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your ignorance. All such boasting is evil. Ooh, pretty intense, right? The idea is this, that make sure that when we're planning things, that we're not just doing what I feel like doing. It's being based on a nudge by God in your life. Paul's saying, man, I hope to come back, but I don't know, Lord willing. When we were growing up, as I was starting to say, My mom had this thing. She must have read that exact same passage. And anytime we would talk about something we planned to do, she would always correct us and finish our statement by saying, well, Lord willing. And it got so out of control. You'd be like, hey, mom, I'm going to run to the restroom. I'll be right back. And she's like, Lord willing, like everything was Lord willing. And I, it stuck with me over the years because that idea is so true that, man, we don't want to take a single step forward without God being the one that's driving the ship. It's so easy for us to move independent from him on this. But here, the cool thing is for the very first time, you're seeing that just because Paul moves on, the ministry doesn't stop. The ministry doesn't stop. He leaves trusted volunteers there to carry on the ministry. Parents in the room, any of you with older children, do you remember when your kids finally got to the age where you could leave them alone at home, alone and trust that they weren't going to kill each other? Anybody remember that day? Some of you aren't quite there yet, but what a joy. In the past year, our kids are finally, and we're incrementally easing into it and kind of uh, checking in, but my son is 13 now, my daughter's 11, and really she's the one driving the ship. Uh, but but it's so refreshing. And then the other that's nine that we can leave and like they, we come back and they're still, we check pulses, like they're still a breathing. We call it camp alive. And, uh, and so it's, it's an awesome thing. And think about that. That's exactly what's going on in the church now. Paul is able to leave and be like, hey, it's gonna keep on going. Because why? Because the Holy Spirit's doing a work there. It's, it's taken root. He continues there. He moves on. He spreads himself, heading back all the way to Antioch in route there, verse 22. When he had landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. So that, in that little brief description, one line there, he's traveled over 1,200 miles. This is a big trip. He ends up back in the seaport, which is the closest one to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he goes back to report all that God's been doing on these ministry trips, on these missionary adventures. How awesome would that have been if you're in that church where Paul and Silas come back and they're giving a report of everything that's transpired, how God's used them. I would suggest I pause there for a moment because, man, I think that's what the church is supposed to be a storytelling place, a place where we come together, we gather, and what we do is share what God's been doing in our lives. 
And it's such an awesome thing that that's what spurs you on. Think about what gives us motivation and compels us when you hear like, oh man, God's been faithful in your life that way. Oh, he's been faithful in your life that way. Oh, look how he's worked here. This week was jam-packed with stories like that. It was so fun. One of the stories that stuck out in my mind this week was a mom that came over and she was having, I think she had three different generations of kids in the Awana program. She was serving her younger daughter that was maybe, I don't remember age, young, early teen. And they're serving. Then kids in the program, well, the mom comes over with tear-filled eyes because she's like, you wouldn't believe. My daughter got to sit down and pray with one of these kids to accept Christ. So awesome to see multi-generations impacting the next generation. A beautiful thing that spurs us on. Another one, I was standing in this room and I was listening as all the kids were leaving and they had these crosses out there and parents are reading names for the first time and those were clearly explained. This is if this is a first time profession or decision to follow Jesus Christ. I hear one parent see their kid's name on it and their only response was this, well, we gotta go out to ice cream. I was like, pretty much as adults, we're just looking for any excuse to get ice cream. But such a, a beautiful picture of God's hand at work. And you're like, story after story. That's what the church is intended to be. And that's how it works. When we're together working, serving together, we're sharing stories of celebrating God's hand. That's what keeps the whole cycle going. It continues. So he's there, goes back, sets up has a chance, and then heads all the way back to Antioch, which is where he began. In verse 23, it tells you what happens there. After spending some time there, talking about Antioch, he departed and went from one place to the next, to the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Strengthening all the disciples. So he spent some time in Antioch. They believe most likely kind of took a break during winter. Spring starts going back. And this is now as subtle as it may appear. This is the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey. Right there in that little verse. He's now starting and he's following the trek of where he, the exact same route that he went on his first two missionary journeys. But here's the subtle difference. The first two missionary journeys, when he's going from town to town, how is he welcomed? Uh, with stones and hatred and, and prison time and, uh, and, and being beaten. And, and now what does it say? What's, what's happening? He's visiting. He's going from place to place that he's been. And he's seeing what? That the church is taking root. It's, it's starting to set up starting to ha happen. Now he's not going there trying to introduce them to Christ. He's going there to strengthen existing believers. He's coming to realize, wait a second, there's something to this. This is bigger than just me. How awesome is it when we understand that about the local church? Sometimes we can get kind of in our own little circle and be like, man, am I the only believer around? You forget that you're a part of a global enterprise of what God is doing. A couple of years ago, I saw this video that I'm about to show. It kind of made me laugh as a pastor had to describe what it is he actually does for a living. Take a peek at this. People often say to me, they say, J. John, you know, what, what do you do? And it's always very difficult to know what to say. Because if I say to you that I'm a reverend, which I am, that conjures up certain images in people's minds as to what I might be. So I like to be a little bit creative in telling people what I do. I sat next to this lady on an aeroplane at Heathrow Airport and I said, hello. And she said, well, hello. And I said, where are you going? And she says, I'm going to Singapore. Then she said to me, where are you going? 
I said, I'm going to Australia. I said, what do you do? So she told me. Then she said, what do you do? And I said, well, <laughs> I work for a global enterprise. She said, do you? I said, yes, I do. I said, we've got outlets in nearly every country of the world. She said, have you? I said, yes, we have. I said, we've got hospitals and hospices and homeless shelters. I said, we do marriage work. We've got orphanages. We've got feeding programs, educational programs. I said, we do all sorts of justice and reconciliation things. I said, basically, we look after people from birth to death and we deal in the area of behavioural alteration. <laughs> She went, wow! And it was so loud, her wow, loads of people turned around and looked at us. She says, what's it called? I said, it's called the church. If we are a follower of Jesus, wow. then we are part of a global enterprise. But not only is it global, it's intergalactic because it includes everyone that's gone before us. Wow. <laughs> so you're a part of something intergalactic. In fact, say to your neighbor, intergalactic. That's just fun to say. Pretty cool to think about that reality of when you invest in the church, it's not like you're like, oh man, I'm doing something that's about dead and it's about to extinguish, like it's about, about over. No, you're a part of something that's happening all over our planet. For about 15 years, I was a young adults pastor in Chicago, and one of the things that happened when we were there is my wife was working at a university. She oversaw their global missions trip. I oversaw the missions trip that the, that the church did for uh, young adults there. And then we do, so in any given year, we do like two or maybe three trips, uh, two international and at least uh, one uh, national. And the thing that blew me away is every single time you hop, we'd hop on a plane, you'd show up to a new space, and you'd think to yourself, man, I wonder what, is God working there? Every single time you'd show up, and God's on the move there. Show up in Kenya. God's on the move there in Northern Ireland. He's on the move there in Africa, wherever, Europe, we, any place we visited, you'd come upon believer after believer that God had made himself irresistible in their life. He draw them to himself through his grace. I remember one time in, in Kenya where we were visiting these Maasai people. Maasai people are the people that wear like all red and like they basically are herdsmen and uh, carry spears. That's why I'm doing this in case you're wondering. Uh, but uh, visiting them and uh, th this, is how, this is how they survived. This was their staple diet is they, they would have the milk from the cows, which they, they took care of, and they, they'd poke little holes in the cows and then the blood that came out would then add to the milk. That was their staple diet for protein. So these people, we come across some of them, and I met one of the, the chief's sons, and they said, oh, his name is Emmanuel. 
I'm like, his name's Emmanuel. I said, you do know that that means God with us, right? And they're like, oh yeah, the missionary that was here explained that to us. That's why we named him Emmanuel. And you think about like, man, it doesn't matter where you go on the planet. God's moving and working. You're a part of something bigger than yourself. That makes it worth it. Any energy and effort that you put towards something, because why? You know that it's going to last and you know that it matters. Think of how many dumb things were a part of that you're like, oh, that was kind of a fleeting thing. That was a worthless use of my time. The church is not that. The church is not that. So here, he's going, he's visiting, he's strengthening disciples. He's seeing that it's taken root. And here it continues on, verse 24. This is a fascinating description. It says, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. Remember, we were just there. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla, remember them, and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, not Ikea, Ikea, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Now let me explain here what's happening. We're introduced for the very first time in a really long time to somebody other than who? Paul. We've been following Paul super closely. Everything, he takes a step, the text takes a step. He's, he goes this direction, it goes that direction. Now, it leaves Paul somewhere in some random city, and where does it do? It introduces us to a new character by the name of Apollos. Apollos was a, a Greek name of a Jewish man, very uh, uh, learned man. In fact, when it says that he's from Alexandria, Alexandria would in that time be known as like the capital of education. They believed that they had collected, they had a huge library, they believed that they had collected all of the world's knowledge in one place. So if you said you were from Alexandria, that was like saying you're from Harvard. You know, like you were like legit knowledgeable dude. So he's showing up there. He's not only knowledgeable, he's also eloquent. He's able to say what's going on in his mind, which is an accomplishment, I've realized. I was talking this week uh, with um, sharing with the kids, and we asked the question, like, what are some of the struggles that you face? This one super cute little kid, he's like, well, to be honest with you, my hardest thing is to get what's happening in here to come out here. And I was like, yeah, I have the same issue. And so he's, he's explaining that, well, well, Apollos is the guy that's nailed it. He's got both covered. I, I, I kind of was thinking of, of him and kind of picturing him. I do this when I study. I'm left long amounts of time in the a single room. And I was thinking of him as the Gaston of the early church. You guys know who Gaston is? So here, here, here's Apollos in my mind. So Apollos... He's got lots going for him. He knows him, his stuff. Like you, you think about that. Uh, he, he, no one knew scripture like Apollos. No one was eloquent like Apollos. No one was fervent like Apollos. No one was bold like Apollos. He had the whole thing except what? Do you see in the text? Didn't know that much about Jesus. 
knew a little bit. You know, he had, a, he had a good starter knowledge. He understood what John the Baptist had presented, that one, he was the Messiah, two, that we needed to repent. So he had some foundational things, but he hadn't heard about the life, death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, hadn't heard about the coming of the Holy Spirit. He had some major gaps in his theology, and that's where we see the church start to act the way the church is supposed to do. What happens? Aquila and Priscilla noticed this. They're like, man, this guy's really sharp, but he's kind of clueless as it relates to Jesus. So it pulls him aside. That was a major crossroad. You imagine that, that cup of Starbucks they're having, they're coming to him and they're like, oh, we hate to tell you, even as blue collar workers and tent makers, we want to explain to you, you don't know as much as you think you know. That could have gone really south, right? That could have gone very poorly, but instead he embraces the truth. They're able to send him off to impact the region. They send them back to Corinth to come alongside the Jews. They're pursuing and presenting Jesus Christ as the Messiah to the folks there. I was thinking about that as you relates to us today. You never know, you never know when you're investing in the next Paul, when you're investing in the next Apollos. That's the beautiful thing about the church, the way it works. It's not a, some kind of a hierarchy. We're supposed to be iron sharpening iron, and you never know when you're investing in someone spiritually who they're going to become and what impact they're going to have. He uses simple people like Aquila and Priscilla tent makers to literally set up and invest in somebody that goes on to have tons of impact. Think about that. I was thinking even over the years in my own ministry, I look back and I start, I was reflecting on this in my office. I was think, thinking about all the different people over the years that I would have never guessed. A guy by the name of Dan Vasquez, he showed up in our young adults ministry, knew nothing about Jesus. Now, the most recent, he, he stays in touch with me. He's like, yeah, I just got hired as an associate pastor at this church called Harvest back in Chicago. So cool to see that. Another, another guy by the name of Manny that was like a, pretty much a gangbanger, and I was a part of it. Now, now he's leading a discipleship school here in the state of California, as if we couldn't use that. And you think about that, another guy, Ben, that I got to be, spend time with is now, got a Dove Award, I saw. He's in a, in a band that actually worshiping Jesus Christ. Joe Basil, my best friend growing up, is a legit evangelist. You can't get him to stop talking about Jesus as he pastors in a church in Fresno. You start thinking about these people when interacting with them at the time, you would have never guessed what God was going to do through them because how he set this up, teamwork makes the dream work. He allows us to be a part of putting down roots and building into people that you never know. And you think about these 245 kids around, running around this campus. You imagine in that mix, maybe it's the next Billy Graham was here on our campus this week. Who, who knows? You don't know. And that's the amazing thing that God invites us to be a part of. So just wrapping up, my question for us is what is the unique role you plan to play in the body of Christ? What is the, what's the weekly kingdom responsibility that you're going to roll up your sleeves and you're going to have a part in? The beautiful thing is that he invites every single one of us to come off the sidelines and be a part of the bigger picture, a global enterprise even. Amen? Let me pray as we wrap up. God, I thank you so much for this section of scripture and even... Upon reading at first, didn't see a lot in that, but as further study showed, this was a turning point 
for the church because people started rising up, even in the absence of Paul, and started expanding your kingdom. And that's really what you've done over the years. It hasn't always been on the back of evangelists. It's been on the back of people that are actually living it out themselves. Simply, day to day. That's my prayer for this church. That's my prayer for myself, is that we would be a, see ourselves as part of the greater mission, the greater ministry of the church of Jesus Christ. There are zero regrets for the person that invests in that. Pray that that would sink in. We take that to heart and even look for ways to apply it this week. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, two things just as you're leaving today. If there's anything that we can be praying for you, you will have a few volunteers following the service. And also just, if you wouldn't mind, just pause with me. I just want to pray for this team before they go out. Is that okay? Will you join me? God, I just come to you right now and so grateful for what you're doing in each of these students' lives and so excited for what's in store for them the week ahead. And I, God, I ask practically for some safety, for protection over them, that there be nothing that gets in the way of what their, uh, their agenda is, God. And their agenda, Lord, we're so grateful is to proclaim you. I pray that, pray that you provide divine appointments in advance. You'd prepare hearts in advance, soften them, provide conversations that point to uh, the love of Jesus Christ. I pray that this would be a growing week for each one of them and they'd come back with more of a fervor and a passion than ever for you. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks so much. Have a great Sunday.